Welcome to the Bold SLP Podcast. We are so happy that you're here and can't wait to share with you all of the amazing conversations we've been having. We are the co-founders of the Bold SLP Collective, and we are also your hosts, Lisa, Desi, and myself, Ingrid. Each of us has a variety of experiences in all things bilingual and bimodal speech-language pathology. You'll get to know us pretty well on here. We started this podcast to share our lived experiences, but also because we want to bring advocacy and cultural humility to the forefront of every speech therapy conversation. We hope that you'll join us each week, and we hope that you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Bold SLP podcast. I am your host, Ingrid, and I'm here with Lisa and Desi and a very special guest. We're going outside the field today. Sim, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for everyone here? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. So hi, I'm Simone, um, but everyone calls me Sim, so you're more than welcome to. (laughs) And yeah, I am a school psychologist practicing in the lovely state of California. I am a third year school psychologist. So um, I'm about to wrap up year three at the end of this school year and getting ready for year four. I graduated from Loyola Marymount University in 2020. So a great time to graduate. (laughs) Um, And then I dug through and got a job and I've landed and I've been practicing ever since. And um, I'm so excited to be able to talk about being a bilingual school psychologist. I am fluent in both English and Spanish. Um, And when I say fluent, I mean, I read it, I write it, I speak it. And sometimes I even watch my TV in Spanish. (laughs) The whole, the whole list, the whole nine yards. I'm so excited to be talking to some amazing speech and language pathologists, especially because I know this is a topic that needs a little more discussion, especially in just the field of education as a whole. Yeah, I was so excited whenever we were looking at guests. I'm like, I want to have Sim on. She has such fun <laughs> reels on Instagram. And Thank then you. I love like how you put in culture into them. And then you're always advocating for bilingual evaluation. And so I just want to start there. Just how was, was your story, first of all, and then your journey mm-hmm. to school psychologist? So fun fact, I didn't actually start with wanting to be an educator at all. Um, My original life plan that I had since I was five was to become a lawyer. And I actually wanted to be an immigration lawyer or like a victim's rights um, advocate of some sort. So I always wanted to help people. That was the big story. I've always wanted to help people. Um, And then I got to be around 17 and I was applying to colleges and I realized I did not want to go to law school. So I wanted to do something different. And my heart was really in psychology. Um, I went to the University of San Francisco for my undergraduate career, and in that, I was also in a dual degree program. So while I was working on my um, bachelor's degree in psychology, I was also working towards a master's degree in teaching. I was put into field work, and I realized quickly, teaching is not what I want to do with myself. (laughs) Um, Bless teachers and and all of the work they do, but that is just not something I could do. but I knew I wanted to be in education. I wanted more psychology though. So I did my research and I found school psychology and I really liked just what I saw. Like I get to work more individually and in small groups, which I think is great. Um, I can have more mental health impact, but I also get to do things like testing and I get to really learn about how a kid learns. So um, 
I immediately applied to go to grad school and I went straight through. I graduated and a month later I started um, graduate school at Loyola Marymount. And so that's where I went. And three years later, I graduated from there. So straight through seven years. Um, and I really, really wanted to use my skills as a, as a Spanish speaker to have more of an impact because I realized in graduate school, you know, bilingualism isn't exactly talked about as a part of the curriculum that we learn, or not the curriculum, but like just the studies we do. Like we we learn about being culturally sensitive and being culturally aware. We learn about how to take culture into consideration when we talk about disabilities, but there isn't like a bilingual track to, you know, being a, you know, a school psychologist. So I was like, I would like to, for practicum, be placed with bilingual psychs. Um, my internship, I was also placed with a bilingual psych. And I really learned a lot from them about how to do this job in not just a bilingual way, but a bicultural way. Um, fortunately, my mentors and my um, supervisors were um, bilingual and bicultural. So that added a lot of credibility, I think, to my learning and my experience. Um, and I got to take some of my own experiences out of that. And um, it's really helped me navigate working with kids too and working with families in particular. Um, and it, it's created like a really interesting relationship that I have with some families. Like some families will ask to speak to me and me only because they know they'll feel comfortable and I'll understand them and I'll talk to them um, in the language they prefer and not force something on them. And likewise, I also understand some of the cultural aspects of being a Latina. So um, yeah, that's that's my story. That's the journey, and it's it's ongoing. <laughs> it yeah. keeps going. Not to derail Ingrid's um, questions, but I wanted to mm -hmm. actually ask you if you wouldn't mind kind of explaining what is your understanding of the difference between bilingual and bicultural, because yeah. I think it's a really important thing that we're always talking about here. But I I would love to hear it from your perspective as a psychologist. Of course. So um, to me, bilingual is you, you is just the language piece, right? And bilingualism is not mutually exclusive to being bicultural, um, but it's also not mutually inclusive to being bicultural. Um, I think to me, bicultural means I was raised with two different cultures around me and in me. So I was born in the United States, and that is a, a huge privilege that I have. But my parents both immigrated from Peru. And so I grew up. Um, with Peruvian food. I grew up with Peruvian culture. I, I grew up with um, even just some of the language. Like, you know, we um, there, there's Spanish in so many other countries and we all say things differently, right? So even just some of the terms that Peruvians say that you might not hear in another country or vice versa. Um, so that is also something that I, I consider to be cultural. Um, it's just a lot of different aspects, I think, that transcend just language, but language is a huge part also, I think, of what it means to be bicultural in some ways. I know sometimes, um, especially in some Latin households, um, the English-only kids are sometimes shunned by their own family, which I also think is completely unfair, <laughs> but that's because it's so intertwined. We do see bilingualism and biculturalism as... Um, siblings they're 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 related to each other um but they're not the same person right like they're not the same thing so that's just how i grew up understanding biculturalism like i grew up in the us i 
um, tend to see things from a little bit more of an individualistic perspective, as we see in the United States. That's kind of just how the culture is, as opposed to Latino culture, which is very collectivistic, very family oriented. I still am very much about my family, but um, I've taken the U.S. stance a little bit of like, I'm going to protect my peace over here <laughs> and y'all do you over there. Um, but I still love you. You are speaking to me. But yes, <laughs> definitely yeah. something that I bet we can all identify with. Yeah. <laughs> I found it really interesting. Um, I felt like you were talking about our grad school experiences where bilingualism was like an afterthought and we a lot of us didn't get bilingual I didn't get any bilingual internship experiences when I was in grad school they were just not available Mm -hmm. um and yeah you know there's some cultural things here and there talked about but never like bilingualism as a whole um there are some grad schools with a bilingual track but you've got to really know what you're doing to go find them and, yep. you know, a lot of us are first gen and we just like, I went wherever it was cheapest. Like I wasn't mm-hmm. looking for any bilingual anything. Um, yeah. But yeah, that, that's mm-hmm. wild to think that it happens in your field as well. I think it's also really, um, that's another consideration you have. That's another layer you have to add to it. How many of us are first gen? Um, how many of us are the first ones to go to college, let alone go to grad school? Um, my parents were so jazzed I went to grad school, but they were also like, are you sure? This is a lot of money. And I'm like, well, you raised me to think that education was like the only way we were going to advance as a family and and for myself. So I'm going to do this and I'm doing this for us, not just for me. It, it, it's, you know, last name isn't just mine it's all of ours um and so that's just been you know that's that's a whole other layer to to address which I know like that's not even the topic of today but like you know like that's a common thread for a lot of us that are bilingual too like you know how how many of us are the first ones to to pave that way for our families and for ourselves I just love what you said that the last name isn't just mine, it's all of ours, because it just really speaks to the community way of thinking. You know, it's not just you and all about you and advancing just yourself. You're really thinking about you, your family and your community as a whole. And I I wanted to take a moment to say how powerful that that statement was. Um, but just um, what Desi had mentioned, like between bicultural and bilingual, you mentioned in school that, you know, you kind of they kind of touch on cultural sensitivity and it's almost like this like buzzword that you want to say I touched on it you know we we spoke about it mm-hmm. I don't remember what we said or or what was what I learned it was probably something very shallow but there's definitely no bilingual track or no like this is also an okay way to learn language and both of these are important and relevant in the child's life and yeah, I was just having those thoughts earlier. And I was like, just keep it to yourself because we need to keep going. But then you said that beautiful thing about your life. <laughs> no, and I, you know, and that's, but that ties into some of that biculturalism too, because that's, that's a very collectivistic way of thinking, right? Um, and that's part of, you know, a, a big chunk of like, I do it for my family pride as well. And, but I also do it for me. I, I think of what is good for me. And then how does that impact my family? So I I think that's like, I think to me, the perfect example of what biculturalism is. It's like the blend of two different ideas, two different 
cultures, two different ways of thinking, and then seeing how they mesh. And I don't think any two people are going to have the same way of understanding biculturalism or this, like, I, I can meet another Peruvian that was, that has the same background as me, and we're probably going to have a very different understanding of what it means to be a Peruvian American, right? Um, likewise, you know, my parents, they have a very different understanding of that, too. They see things very differently than I do, because I was born here, and they weren't. So, um, that's, but that's, like, part of that, that bicultural piece, too. No, that's so important. And I'll move on if we're ready from mm-hmm. the bicultural conversation, but Um, I am very curious because these are conversations that we have in our field and amongst ourselves all the time about the workload that bilingual providers carry. I was just really curious. Are you guys having that conversation in your field about equitable like workload and how much more it goes into bilingual bicultural evaluations? So not really. Um, And I think I think that stems from, I think all of us are overworked, all of us are um, underpaid, I will just flat out say that, Um, and nobody wants, I think, to have the discussion about caseload and like who has it worse, because I think it, it tends to then drive a wedge between people. And then it's a it's a the oppression Olympics kind of like who has it worse who who really is doing the most work who has the most labor intensive job and so on um, and that's I think why that conversation is avoided and also I mean you have to consider the school psychology field is predominantly white I don't remember the the exact statistics off the top of my head but they it is predominantly a, a white field. And then you do have some people of color and then you have some bilingual people in there somewhere. And there's not enough of us, that's that's for sure. Um, so no, that it's not a conversation that's really being had in the field. I think a little bit more, you start to see more bilingual psychs coming into the field for sure. You're, you're starting to see that pathway really be seen by bilingual folks um, as an option. Cause I think originally I, I only thought bilingual people could be like teachers right like you don't really think about the other educators out there that the other things that you can do um but I I, they are very labor intensive um there's a lot of consideration when looking at a bilingual case um I do a lot of overtime for my district it's not a common thing that psychs get overtime but I do work sometimes on on weekends and I'm almost always given the, the bilingual case one of the bilingual cases um I'm almost always given a bilingual place. I think this weekend is the only one that I can think of this whole school year that I have an English only kid. <laughs> um, I very rarely get an English only kid. And likewise at my school, my caseload is most of my kids um, at my school site do speak more than one language, whether that's Spanish, like 99% of the kids are Latino. And yeah, they're very labor intensive extra testing, extra consideration when it comes to records, a lot more work on the interview front when I talk to parents, um, because unfortunately, a lot of the parents don't, you know, they don't speak English, and and that's fine. Um, But it does mean that I have to find things like all my forms in Spanish, some of my forms don't come in Spanish. So then I have to sit there and interview them and translate from English to Spanish, and then my brain back to English. and it's a lot of extra work, uh, definitely. And I don't think people consider that 
a lot when they and it's work they didn't teach you in grad school exactly and I mean like yes I learned all about how to interview and I learned all about their records right but I mean I didn't have a specific class on what are the extra things you should consider when considering a cultural impact what are the extra things you need to consider when you have a kid that just immigrated a month ago and you know they only speak one language and what do we do with that you know and those are things I just had to learn on the fly yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. And I find myself sometimes having to make the phone calls for my English only colleagues at my school site. Um, Cause they're like, you know, you're the mental health professional too. Like, can you um, call this parent? Cause it's a confidentiality issue. And I'm like, I will sit here with you and I will do that. Um, because, you know, again, there's not a lot of mental health professionals on the school site. So when there's only two of us and only one of us speaks Spanish, it, it leaves us in a, in an, awkward position <laughs> so then it leaves me with them with a little bit more work and granted you know they don't do this often but like the times that it needs to be done it needs to be done and and then you know who are you going to call the school psych you had mentioned earlier that um everyone is overworked and all of you all of you have like these heavy heavy caseloads mm -hmm. but I feel like objectively just looking at it wouldn't it seem like you are overworked as the rest plus you have all the bilingual cases oh yeah oh yeah 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 I think I I definitely agree like I think bilingual psychs have a heavier I don't want to say burden but we do carry I think a heavier load because yes we are already overworked as is we're already starting at a disadvantage with our case loads and just the sheer number of school sites we don't have enough of us there's not enough SLPs either like there's not enough of any position in education just to say that right off the bat but then you add the bilingual component and just how many of us are bilingual and how many aren't bilingual and you leave you know bilingual psychs and bilingual SLPs in a position where we also have to add the extra work of playing translator and interpreter of you know adding extra work to our assessments and extra considerations when we talk to parents, IEPs, like that, don't even get me started. Like with the IEPs, I translate for myself because I don't want, uh, interpreters, um, they do a very valuable job, but they don't know psych terminology. They don't know speech and language terminology, right? They don't know, they don't know the terms. They know maybe educational terms, but they won't know our terms. So rather than deal with that headache of having to speak in English, have them translate, correct them if they're wrong. I just do it myself because I've learned how to do it by, like all by myself. And I'd rather that because that just takes less time. It's much clearer. And then I feel confident that I know what I said and I didn't have somebody else translate it for me. Yeah. That I do the exact same thing. I just report out and I, the, I always see the interpreter's eyes go just like really wide. And I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I, and a lot of the times they actually are grateful for it because they mm -hmm. also feel like they wouldn't have conveyed it in the same way either. Um, and I've already laid a foundation with the families, you know, they're expecting me to relay information in a certain way. So it's kind of weird to now filter it through an interpreter. Exactly. So it's mm -hmm. nice to hear that that's your experience too. No, I, I've had interpreters, like they, they ask like, oh, miss, like, are you, can, can you? And I'm like, I'm half, I'll do it. I got you. All right, don't don't worry about it. No sweat. Cause like it doesn't bother me. Cause again, I I was fortunate enough to in practicum and internship be able to learn the terminology and the skills in both languages. 
So that prepared me. But I mean, Ingrid, like you said, like you weren't able to have that because I mean, unfortunately, there's not a lot of bilingual folks in the fields that we have. So then you're left with, you know, sometimes you don't get that experience and you're just learning on your own time, um, on your own dime sometimes. And, you know, they just send you out there and say, hey, you're fluent, right? You can do this. It's like, mm, I can, but will I? <laughs> will I do this extra thing for you? Who's not even, you know, I love talking to you now. And then I love, <laughs> this is what I get out of your reels. And I knew that you were younger than me. I'm 35, but I just love your generations. Like, no, <laughs> like, <laughs> there's no, cause my generation, my, me personally, I won't like lump all of the people and all the millennials, but I'm like, no, but, or no. And maybe, and you're like, no period. Like, no <laughs> so being 27 I'm technically I'm I'm still a millennial I'm the bait I'm like the tail end You're of the like millennial however <laughs> yeah I consider myself yeah. more of a of a zennial like or a zillennial however it's said yes. um, and I'm an because, elder millennial I'm like <laughs> which I find okay. hilarious an elder millennial yes. <laughs> but yeah no I I mean I'd like to think that I, I do the whole like, mm, I'm not really feeling that like I, I do the kind of millennial thing. But this year in particular has really tried me. So I just I'm starting to just say no, period. And that's my full sentence. Um, and then I'll go back and be like, and and then I'll explain myself. I'm kind of like that's that's to me like the the millennial the thing. It's like, no. Nope. And like the breath, and I'll tell you why not. <laughs> and um, it actually saves so much time because yeah. when you're when you're playing the little dance and like ah, and you finally end up with your no after like all of your friends have helped you through it. Um, but the no first, it might sound harsh, but it's like it's the answer. It's the actual answer that you're going to end up coming to, or you just burn out. Right. And then I, I, I am a yes person as described by my supervisors, which I don't think they mean like in a bad way at all, because I, I do say yes a lot. But I also get I've gotten really good at saying yes, and I need this from you or yes, but I'm going to need more time. Um, I've gotten more comfortable with asking for what I need now on top of just saying yes. And likewise with no, no, because I'm going to need more time. So if you would like me to do X, I need Y. So um, I've gotten, I think, a lot better this year in particular, because last year I was still saying yes to everything and I was burnt out. But this year I'm like, I'm tired of everybody trying to take advantage of me. So no more. Thank you. <laughs> I love that. I was going to ask about practices in your field, but just from the conversation, I'm like, if they're not even worried about giving you the time to do this evaluation. Yeah. they're probably not even worried about how you're doing them either yeah uh, I, I is mean, that kind of how it feels to you oh uh, like yes but um I do have um supervisors and my district is pretty um pretty cognizant of the fact that we service a huge huge bilingual population a predominantly black and brown population um in Los Angeles because <laughs> you know it, it's very very diverse down here. Um, and so the district is very aware. And so we do have policy on how we are supposed to assess. And my supervisors are both very, very um, good about supporting the best practice when it comes to bilingual assessments. 
But that is just my supervisors and then the district policy. Now, is that done everywhere? No, I wish it was. I have gotten reports before from other states and even other, you know, counties in California where they're like, oh, this child, you know, just immigrated, but we tested them all in English and they came out with an IQ in like the 60s. And I'm like, well, gee, I would wonder why that occurred. Um, did we consider that California law requires that we assess kids in their native language? <laughs> and so it, it's, I've gotten some, some wild reports before and I'm like, that's just horrible. Um, I've gotten private reports that people pay for that the, you know, the assessor is a monolingual person and they're like, yeah, this child speaks two languages, predominantly Spanish. I tested them all in English and here's their IQ. And I'm like, are you, someone paid you for this. Um, that's insulting, honestly. I'm over here doing it for free and you're getting paid for this and yours would not even hold up in court. <laughs> so, um, but I, back to like the best practice thing, like I, I do just know what I should be doing. Cause again, I was also practicing in practicum and an internship. Um, and obviously you adapt things to the district you're in and the, you know, the populations you work with, uh, for and with, but, um, yeah, that's not everywhere. <laughs> that's not everywhere. I wish it was, but it's not. Yeah. The, okay, the IQ testing, the IQ testing really irks me. I know exactly mm -hmm. what you're talking about. It happens very, very often here in the, in Canada, but it's more for funding reasons. So the school will demand a report or else no services for the child. So they just know, like, we're not going to share this report with anyone except for the people that will give us the services. And yeah. then they, they could do what they want with it after. So I, I see why parents would, would go do that. And that information that what's on the report is not at all reflective of what the child can actually do. It's just right. a little ticket for, a, for some free services for, for us anyway. Right. No. And I, and I think that it's somewhat similar in the U.S. because there are states where um, if you have a certain eligibility, if you have a certain, um, if your report says a certain thing, like let's say autism, you get money. Pa the parents get money. So there is a huge push in some states that um, they will like a parent will request like an autism eval, they won't even consider the rest. They won't consider a, a learning disability. They won't consider ADHD, like under a health impairment or anything. They just want the autism because it's more money. <laughs> and, um, and I understand, you know, there is a need sometimes, but you, you have to weigh all of those other factors. Um, it's, it's not fair to a kid to label them with a certain disability just because you didn't want to go the extra mile and do the extra testing or because you wanted the funding. Like, that's just so unethical in so many different ways. I, I can't even count them. Um, and it, it just then it, it also makes me question, like, how are you doing this as a professional? Like, you're just OK with rubber stamping kids. Um, and labeling them and not considering what they actually need, um, which is a huge red flag to me. Um, I've read some reports and I'm like, oh, you did not consider the the culture or the language here at all. And this kid has been mislabeled. And now that's three years of their life that they've been with the wrong eligibility and the wrong services. And I'm going to have to be the bad guy and clean it up and tell parents that something went wrong which then reflects back on the district.
Do you, and districts don't like when I do that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, do you have conversations with those providers ever at any point? I'm just curious because, mm -hmm. you know, we come across it all the we time. We come across this, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the the thing that I'm thinking about specifically is just conversations I've had with other SLPs. Again, finding another SLP is like where I live mm -hmm. is like very hard. <laughs> so um, it's usually just me having a conversation with myself. But when I do find an SLP <laughs> uh, and we do talk about bilingual evaluations, they usually want to run in the opposite direction. Um, and if I ask them for like procedures or what, how they would do it, they're it's it again it's just so removed from our field unfortunately mm -hmm. that people feel completely out of water so I'm wondering if you've ever had to uh, have those conversations um with the people that do the evaluations or with your team and and what do those conversations look like mm -hmm. so I don't get to talk to the folks that came before me that like when I read their reports because like usually it's like for a triennial or something right and I'm just reading three years later and sometimes those people aren't even in the district anymore whether and you don't know whether they left on their own or if they were let go or whatever the the process for that was um so I don't often get to talk to the people that were my predecessors um I do get to talk to other um bilingual psychs um on occasion because um, I might meet them at like a, a conference, right? Or in my district, we do have a lot, um, which is still not enough. Um, my district employs over 500 psychs and that's still not enough. <laughs> and I know it's it's huge, it's insane. Um, that's still not enough. Um, there are schools without a psych because unfortunately we just don't have the, the manpower or the woman power or the person power um, for that. So um, yeah, but I do get to talk to some other bilingual psychs who are also just like, I'm up to here in evals and everybody wants something and everyone needs something. And it's like, yep, I, I hear that. And yeah, no, that's, it's a lot. <laughs> Talking to like bilingual sites in, in um, conferences too. Like we're all just like, how's, how's your caseload on fire? Yep. Me too. And Desi, what was the other part of your question? I totally lost my train of thought here. It was just about like, what do these conversations look like on the back end when it's like, oh crap, we've misidentified a child or like this triangle yeah. comes up and you read the report and you're like, wow, this is bogus. Like what? Yeah. No, it, what do people say to you? Um, I mean, I, I will go tell my admin too. Like I I'll go vent to my admin and be like, listen, I don't know how this got by, but it ain't going to fly with me. And this is not how I'm doing this now. Um, I have very rarely brought something to my supervisor's attention because very rarely does it escalate to the point where it's like a legal jeopardy question. Um, it's just more of a carelessness or laziness, I even dare say. Um, but when it's like a legal jeopardy question, I do then consult my supervisors um, or my boss because I'm like, I don't want this to come back because I'm about to say that this child never should have been qual like qualified as ID and this could be bad you put them in alt curriculum and here we are so like I almost take that personally because I'm like how dare you do this to a child it's just bad it is personal um I feel that way as well like for us is one in 50 that we're working on at the moment but for that family their kid is it you know yeah. they're letting us spend time with them and trusting us 
-hmm. So I, I'm like you, I take it very seriously and I take it very badly when I see mm -hmm. people taking shortcuts and cutting corners on these kids' future. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> when you take so many shortcuts that you're sacrificing your ethical obligation to your students and to the job that it becomes a problem. Um, you know, you want to be efficient. I get it. I want to be efficient too. I, you know, I'm getting tired of all this time I dedicate to my reports because in California, they're huge. But like, also I have to do that because it's legally defensible. It's ethically correct for me to address all of these concerns. And it's important for the future because when another school site reads this, they will have a better picture of where this child was three years ago and they'll be able to, I'm setting the next psych up for success is basically what it is. Like they'll be able to do their job better. When I read a great report, I'm like, yes, I know what I'm looking at. I know what the concerns were and that some of those are the same concerns or we've seen progress. I have a great platform to jump off of for that. I can dive into like a really good report, but when I'm left with a really bad report, no. So we're getting ready to wrap up, but mm -hmm. my last question kind of ties into something that I was just looking up because of what you mentioned. So most school psychs are 76% white. Like most 76% of them are white. And then 10% are Hispanic or Latino. And mm -hmm. then 6% are black. 3% unknown. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe um, that answer. <laughs> Maybe but yeah, answer. you're a little less white than us. We're 92% <laughs> white in the speech world. Yeah, but I yeah. think that that's an improved statistic because I believe when I was in grad school, it was actually higher um, with the white population that was working in school psychology. So I think we are improving. But then something to also consider yeah, is Latinos September are considered... 2022. Ah, so yeah. So that's one of our most more recent statistics. So, but like the thing to mm -hmm. consider is like Latinos are considered, Latino is a, is an ethnicity, right? So we're not even like, mm -hmm. you, you can smash this in with like, you know, we can be white and Latino and we can be like black and Latino. You can be anything in Latino, right? Um, so I'm like, okay, yeah, we're 10%, but then like, where's, how does that also break down with the rest of the, the racial makeup? Um, but yeah, we yeah. are not as diverse as I would like to see it. Um, and then even then, how many of us are actually bilingual? That's a statistic I would love to see. Right. I didn't find that. I was looking, but I couldn't. Yeah, I don't think it's something I... we, we even keep tabs on, honestly. <laughs> so on that note, my last question on our uh, interview kind of prep was, what does it mean to you to be able to serve these bilingual and bicultural families? It means a lot to me. I, I don't even know how to describe it. It just means, I think it just means like restoration to me in a way. And I say restoration in that like, I see how hard it is to be Latino in the United States. Um, and California has a huge Latino population. And even then there's so much discrimination and so much anger towards Latinos in general. Um, and my parents came for a better life. The, you know, the same old story we hear from a lot of folks, the same old story I'm hearing from the people that have their kids at my school site. Um, and to be able to see those students, support the students that look like me and sound like me and have families that have the same or similar stories as my family, it means a lot to me. And it feels like I get a, a big piece of 
pride and I get a very big piece of hope in my heart about it because it means that I'm also showing an example of what is possible for some of my students. I've had kids ask me, can I be like you someday? Um, and I'm like, yeah, sweetie, you can do anything you want. You can, you don't have to ask me about what you can do. If you want to be a psychologist, you can. You don't have to be a psychologist. You can be a doctor. You can be anything you want to be. So let me help you be that. Um, and that's for my kids with disabilities and my kids without disabilities. Um, okay. And being able to add the, the extra layer of I can talk to their parents and I can communicate with their families and I can understand some of those struggles, maybe not everything, but I can understand some of it. That means a lot to me. Um, so that's why it just feels really restorative to me. It makes, it just kind of filled my cup. Um, and I'm able to tell my parents, like, I'm really, like, I've told my parents straight up, I'm grateful that you raised me with two languages. I used to hate it because I used to get made fun of. And then now I'm like, there are people that would love to be able to speak two languages and do what I do. Um, there are people that would love to be able to just have a phone conversation with a parent that's asking a simple question. And so I get to do that. And that's, you know, to me, that's special. That's lovely. Is that your last word, restorative? Or do you I think my last word is going to be, I think it's going to be effort. Um, <laughs> mostly because I think all around, we all need to make a little bit more of an effort to appreciate our bilingual folks in the field of education. Effort. Okay. <laughs> Amen. Um, I was thinking, oh, go ahead, Desi. Oh, sorry. Um, I, I wanted to sneak in with my word because it's actually pretty similar. Um, but I really think that your commitment um, to doing right by these families is so important. And, um, you know, I, I, every time that we have a guest on who expresses that commitment, I always walk away, like I close my Zoom window, and I just feel good inside. So um, anyway, I'm, it's always nice to hear about other people's commitments to doing right by our families, um, who are bilingual and bicultural. So that's what I'm walking away with. Lisa, are you ready? Yeah. Um, th there's like a, like a silly TikToker that makes videos with his cousin and they joke and they're always like, it's not professional. And it's not ethical. Like that's their like catchphrase. It's not professional, not ethical, but you are professional and ethical. And that those are the two things that, that stand out for me with you. And it's, I don't want to take that lightly because you really intentionally are reading through these things and professional ethic on picking two words <laughs> I as usual don't know what word to pick I'm just thinking that I've never thought about how similar your school psych experiences are your bilingual bicultural school psych experiences are to ours over here on this beach end and I'm like why haven't we formed an alliance like that's what I have in my <laughs> brain going like do you want oh, to yeah. form an alliance with me <laughs> I'm like why haven't <laughs> I like thought of you know because I have my best friend from college is um half uh Mexican and half white and she's a school psych and I'm like why have I never talked to her about these things like you know I haven't connected how closely related our uh, fields are because here in my state we don't have the same building blocks of school psychs um, we actually only have one school psych for the whole district wow and the people who do the testing are called educational diagnosticians 
Mm-hmm. So I never like made that connection to um, your field and our field. Um, but now that I know, I'm like, I'm going to talk to more school psychs, more bilingual school psychs, more bicultural school psychs and see how things are going for them and see how we can form an alliance. So alliance yeah. this is my. Oh, there we go. There you found your, your word. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Sim. It was so awesome talking with you. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me. I'm so, oh, I'm so flattered. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening and supporting the Bold SLP Collective. You can find a closed captioned version of this podcast on our YouTube channel. We will also have show notes on our website. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you do all the podcast things. Follow, subscribe, download, and review. And don't forget, we love hearing from you. So connect with us on Instagram at the Bold SLP Collective. Stay bold and humble. See you next time.